Hey gang, welcome to episode 189 of the No Persinium podcast, the voice of everything immersive. I'm Noah Nelson coming to you from the No Pro studio in Los Angeles, aka my kitchen table. Uh, this episode is brought to you by a listeners like you. And gosh darn it, there sure are a lot of you. Um, let's tell you what's going to be on the show today. Uh, we are flashing over to our New York City team where Catherine Yu is going to talk with uh, Ian McNeely and Austin Anderson of Broken Ghosts Immersive. Ghosts? Ghost? Broken Ghost Immersives. I'm reading this. I'm reading this and I messed it up because it's amazing. Uh, they are the co-creators of experiences like The Wake, The Bunker, which I hear nothing but amazing things about, and Rogue's Gallery. Uh, they've got a, uh, a new instance of The Bunker and some new shows coming up right now. They're in flow, and that's why we're doing that this episode this week. Um, hey, Let's point you to a couple of things that are going on in the universe. Uh, there's been a massive amount of reviews this week uh, and last week over at the website. Just just the content keeps on flowing. I personally cannot keep up with it. I literally can't keep up with it. I have not read everything we published. Um, more on that in a moment. Um, we've There's some some big old discussions are going on over in the Everything Immersive uh, Facebook group. Uh, mostly civil. Mostly. We'll talk about that. Talk about that, actually, on the back end of the show. Oh, yeah. Committing to that right now. Um, and uh, people are going to scroll through. You know, I think some of you scroll through to hear what I say. And don't, 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 don't. Um, anyway, there are a ton of episodes that are in play right now. Uh, we are going to do that second IDS one uh, at some point. Probably not even next week because there's a bunch of episodes that are like kind of time critical for the shows that are going on. Some things that are special and I can't tell you about yet. Uh, and I'm just really, 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 really amped up. Um, there's also a bunch of shows that just got announced. Uh, the No Pro uh, North America just went out today. Uh, New York's coming this weekend. LA will probably be on Monday just because uh, I am <laughs> I'm driving a U-Haul from the Bay Area down to Los Angeles on Sunday. Don't really have time to make a newsletter. Sorry, everybody. That's the way it goes. Um, so yeah, things are things are crazy busy. And they will remain crazy busy. And we are going to um, draw it all together and uh, break some stuff down for you in a bit here. Uh, let's talk about the Patreon because uh, we're very thankful for you all. We're up to 226 folks uh, contributing to the Patreon and 1,288. We're, we're, we're less than $250 away from our next goal, which is $1,500. Thank you to Linda Klein, who is our latest backer. And thank you, as always, to our sustaining backers, Jan Budman, Lonnie Hansen, Ari Hurstan, Mark Balthazar, Sam Kinkin, and Ross Sigworth. I talked to Mark this week. I really shouldn't have, like, swallowed. I mean, my mouth is... I've been talking to people for the past couple hours, mostly about exciting stuff. Um, and uh, that means my voice is gone, so... I apologize. I spend most of my time with a voice gone these days. Um, I'm sure some of you really enjoy that. Um, I'm also getting mean. I want to apologize. 
I'm going to get mean. It's going to be better soon because my kitty's coming to live with me and I can't be mean. Oh, he follows me around my mom's place and he meows at me. My mom's living next door. So I see him all the time. I got to scoop out cat poo every day. Um, <laughs> my life is just changing. It's changing all the time. And um, the best parts of it are usually uh, coming from here. <laughs> I mean, don't take that the wrong way. There are bad parts that come from here, too. Um, yeah. Uh, no, there's... Oh, right, the thing. Oh, God. See, this is what I'm talking about. Um, so coming up in April, we got some exciting stuff, uh, and I wanted to lay it out to everybody here. And I know this is mostly for the LA Zone. Um, we've got... Uh, we've got, I've got, I'm doing, uh, I'm going to be the LA Times Festival of Books on the news story stage and talking about the art of presence, which is a talk I've given before. Uh, and I'm going to change a whole bunch of stuff because in the past couple of weeks, I've had some like little light bulbs go off and some things have kind of clicked into place and it's going to be revised version. So the last time I gave this was in November in Denver. And I feel like this is going to be a very... <laughs> Some of it's the same, but like a very different at the same time. Like there are some some lessons that have been learned very recently, uh, good ones, positive ones, not like all no things are bad, uh, but perspective lessons. Um, and perspective, I think, is important. And and something I'm going to talk about on the back end as well is you know a lot of what we see uh, depends upon our point of view. There's an Obi-Wan Kenobi quote I'm going to break out later. Uh, shocker. Uh, I looked it up. I wanted to make sure I got it right. But we're going to talk about that on the back end. But uh, April 13th, that's a Saturday, on the USC campus, uh, I believe at 1 o'clock or so, uh, there, tickets are not available to the public yet. If you've been to the LA Time Festival of Books before, you're able to get them. The tickets are going to be free. There are going to be a lot of them. Uh, it's kind of embarrassing that they put me in the ticket stage. I'm just like, I don't know how many people will show up. I think there's like 17 right now. Once it goes live, we'll be pushing that and encouraging people to kind of come out. And we're going to do probably about 45 minutes or ish, maybe less of the talk. Uh, and then we're going to open up, uh, to QA. So, um, yeah, let's, let's rock and roll on that. Um, there's some shows that are just being announced. I know Annie Lesser is just about to put uh, another new run of Apartment 8 on sale in Los Angeles. If you have not seen Apartment 8, uh, please do. Uh, it's fantastic. And that's just coming up at the end of this month. It's like a surprise little run. Uh, there'll be something on the website about it <coughs> hopefully pretty soon. But you can also just go uh, check out Annie's uh, Instagram feed over at the ABC Project or look for, uh, look for Annie Lesser. Um, definitely worth checking out. Um, David Ruzicka and Eric Vosmeyer uh, just put up a new horror piece. Uh, I think it's called I Want to Live in Your Mouth. Uh, it's going to have a lengthy-ish run uh, over in North Hollywood. Uh, David is uh, a theme park world designer guy, super into immersive horror. Eric Vosmeyer is a friend, cohort, partner on stuff. And I'm uh, saying that partly to disclose things. Uh, I'm really looking forward to checking this one out. You know, everyone knows that like, you know, horror is not my first stop in the genre sweepstakes, but uh, there's a cinematic sensibility to these guys. Uh, and I, I, I've never seen any of their work before, so I'm, I'm, I'm excited. I'm excited. I'll probably send someone else to review, but I'm excited. Um, okay. So where are we right now? Broken ghost immersives. Catherine has the wheel and, uh, just real quick, 
big applause to Catherine Yu for uh, being our everything. So uh, thank you, Catherine. Uh, we would not be around the way we are without you. So on that note, let's take it away. This is Catherine Yu with No Person Name in New York, and today on the show, we've got Broken Ghost Immersives. I am sitting with... Ian McNeely. And on the line, we have... Austin Anderson. And, uh, fellas, uh, what, what exactly do you do at Broken Ghost? Broken Ghost Immersives is our passion project we've been working on for a couple years now. Uh, we produce interactive theater, theater that puts the guest in the driver's seat, and the performers are more like referees who enable people to tell their own stories, make decisions that uh, procedurally generate a unique plot. And uh, all of our shows are built around giving users agency. Anything you want to add to that, Austin? Um, was that a was that a soft segue where we were supposed to say titles? Because we could we could say uh, titles. Sure. <laughs> you could say titles. Time for the pitch, the big pitch. <laughs> All right. Um, well, we uh, started by working on a project called The Wake, which was an immersive funeral for a person. So it's as if uh, you're crashing the funeral for this enigmatic character and you can drink with his family at the bar or there's people cooking in the kitchen. Um, and it gets you know stranger and stranger as you learn more about this person. So that was called The Wake. It was a, a funeral, an immersive funeral. Uh, and then we began work on The Bunker which uh, we've called uh, a choose your own adventure because 15 people get locked in this bunker and they have to work together to survive because spoiler alert, the apocalypse unfolds and they have to go into a suspended animation for a hundred years and they wake up to a strange new world. Uh, and then our third offering uh, that's actually coming out March 14th, 15th and 16th is our first run. It's called the rogues gallery. It's our comic book themed immersive. And it uh, lets players become a supervillain. And it's a convention full of supervillains who have all come for one evil supervillainous activity. And of course, that is to take over the world. Of course. Of course, like you do. And um, those are our three projects we've created so far. And, um, and they all have sort of unique themes, unique worlds. We've developed really elaborate uh, fantastical worlds with their own logic and their own characters. And Austin and I uh, have sort of overseen their growth from, from top to bottom. We thought them up, we wrote it out, and we perform them. So what made you decide to start doing this kind of work? Mm, well, I think uh, I am a person who likes to, to be stimulated, to be busy, and... Uh, if you're like me, you might find it hard to sit in a traditional uh, theater space. You could say that uh, I prefer no proscenium because, did you like that? Yes. I softballed that out there. Uh, <laughs> because, because you want to be busy. You want to be involved. I don't want to watch Hamlet. I want to be Hamlet. Um, and, and that's the spirit that I think guides our work because it's not so much about our great performances uh, it's more in service to the guests and allowing them to have sort of transcendent experiences where they get to feel important. 
so do either of you come from a more traditional theater background or is it coming more from like a love of video games and things like sleep no more Actually, both of us come no, please. You're about to say the same yeah, thing. Both of us come from the same traditional theater background. Uh, we went to undergrad together and studied theater at the University of Idaho. And nice. yeah. And then after that, we formed a Shakespeare company with some of our other um, alumni right out of college and did that for a couple of years and did a bunch of, and then, you know, Ian went and got a degree in performance. He got a term his MFA. I worked at a theater. And so we did a lot of really traditional performance stuff and kind of started realizing that there was a lot we were missing from things like video games and board games and all these other things we loved and just started tinkering and putting stuff together and then saw other people doing the same thing like sleep no more and, and other things and kind of got into it through that angle. So where did the idea for The Wake first come from? Well, I live in a big brownstone in Brooklyn that I share with a bunch of really cool artistic people that are okay with me holding events there. So my idea was about two and a half years ago, I wanted to make um, a haunted house that was not so much a spooky haunted house, but more of a... Uh, artistic haunted house. It would have some sort of art installation in each room and you could wander through. And um, Austin uh, joined me on that. We started working on cool ways that you could have installations in these rooms. Uh, Austin played a demonic puppet that you talk to over Skype because of course Austin is on the West Coast. He's in Olympia. Um, I am. And what did your puppet do in that first iteration of The Wake, Austin? Do you remember? Yeah, I do. I had, there was four different video conferences you could have. And one of them was a puppet that would, um, there were two puppets, two different puppets. One puppet would do a job interview with you that ended with the person being interviewed, having to make up a song with them. Um, one did like a crossfire TV talk show thing about puppet rights. And then there was a game show with this kind of demon character that would berate you. And then there was just a regular conversation with someone who was pretending to be your sibling about uh, how grandma had just died. So it's kind of a roulette wheel of different little video chats that could happen. And then the way sort of took a turn because we realized that um, all of these disparate little installations could add together like a mosaic to tell a story, to be a vehicle for narrative. Uh, and we were already developing this world that was sort of, uh, I think the two, the two touchstones we reference are David Lynch and um, which is a tall order his own world, but, um, and R.L. Stein, uh, the Goosebumps author, who was a, a tremendous uh, influence in my youth. I think I owned all the books, um, but it's really, you know, it's a mystery. That's the dramatic form that one takes. It's a mystery about this person, their enigmatic death, and you get to be a detective and go through their funeral and, um, and just figure out what, you know, what happened. So is there a mystery per se to solve, or is it more about indulging your curiosity about this person who has just passed? I think the beauty of the event is that every character you talk to sees the fundamental mystery in a different way, because they're, some of them are really preoccupied with uh, how this person passed, 
Others are um, just kind of dealing with their own stuff. You know, their um, funerals are a dramatic time, of course, when people are unstable and do crazy things and it's very dramatic. So the performers you hang with really changes the story you get. Uh, and other than the very beginning when they we do sort of a service and the very ending where we all uh, come back together, uh, you, know, you could have a very, very different experience. For example, the person that goes, if you go down and hang out with his cousin who was cooking in the basement, um, she just kind of unburdens her terrible life on you. And she just starts talking about um, her divorce and all these very sad things. Um, so it's kind of up to you. You give agency to the user and they can... Um, you know, explore what makes them excited. Do the different participants uh, influence each other's experiences or is it more based upon what performers you encounter? And how do you design for that? Well, we're getting better at it because it's such a complicated, um, you know, proposition, isn't it? If you actually are going to give people agency that can affect one another, suddenly you have to be really deliberate with how much agency you give and the specifics of, you know, to what extent can they change other people's experiences? I would say that play was more was more performative. It was more like, a, I don't know, promenade theater or something where you walk around and there's performances, quote unquote. Uh, but then when we finished that, we really were hungry for something that would be the thing we're describing, being able to interact with players and have the players change one another's course of events. And that, of course, led us to the bunker. So the bunker, 15 people, the apocalypse has happened. Yeah. So I don't, I don't know, maybe you're kind of in that very dark vein still that you were in, in the wake, like <laughs> the vast majority of the earth's population has perished. They're gone. They're and gone. Uh, I'm trying to remember now you, Ian, are both the game master mm. and a character. Is that correct? I played Dr. Clayton Woodlander which is a uh, nod to Mystery Science Theater 3000, Dr. Clayton Forrester, um, my homage. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a, this is just back to the roots of D&D. Um, &D. A lot of the language is uh, in the second person, you know, you see this, you sense that, uh, and you can sort of activate the narrative in a way that's uh, personal and makes people feel engaged and important because everything relates back to them. Um, but then of course, that's only half of what the experience is like. That's the half I run. Uh, meanwhile, Austin is running life inside the bunker. I'm, I'm doing the explorations outside. He's doing the interior life as this sort of how AI, uh, artificial intelligence that's managing their resources and helping teach people the games and, um, is probably the central vehicle for, for story. What's it like to be a, to be a AI, Austin, and control people's lives? Um, it's good because people will listen to you when you, when the robot voice talks. Uh, I have a, a voice mod that makes me sound like a robot, and it's a lot of ask, answering questions. I think it ends up being like a really interactive version of kind of the clue givers in escape rooms, maybe, where people are playing and immersing and thinking and then when they need some help or they need someone to kind of explain something to them a robot ai is a really natural fit to kind of have someone you can go to with questions and maybe we can talk a little bit about how that works Austin. so you're on the west coast 
Yes, I'm in Olympia, Washington. Yeah, so while Ian is running a game in New York, you are plugged into the system, and from what I can inside a laptop that was essentially watching us through Skype or Google Hangout the whole time. Is that correct? Yeah, you you nailed it. Uh, we are vicious technology scavengers because we don't have the skills to make our own stuff. So I'm using Google Hangouts, um, which is you know got a camera on them and the microphone that I, I can hear what people are saying, and then a speaker so they can hear my response. I use a voice modification program to turn my voice into a cool robot sound. And then we can communicate that way. I'm watching and, and interacting and they can ask me or sometimes I nudge. I've also got some, you know, story beats I hit depending on what's happening in the game and the story. And then the other part of what I'm doing in the bunker is I am running a bank of uh, chat tablets. Essentially, there's five, sometimes more tablets that are connected to other bunkers and you can type in them. It's Skype chat. But, you know, you text the other bunkers essentially to communicate with them. And I am responding to all of those as one of those different characters and kind of spreading the story and sometimes causing chaos and sometimes helping and making alliances and just kind of playing the background players of our story. So what's it like kind of being present in that room remotely, often as five different people? It's really fun because I can move people from different angles. I can have one bunker start a problem and get them kind of, there's a problem they need to solve. And then I can have another bunker be nudging them towards a solution or they can reach out to that bunker. And I have kind of all of the information, but get to pretend like I don't and can sometimes help guide the story in really fun ways. And it's, it's a different way of, like Ian said, doing the Dungeons and, Dra Dungeons and Dragons thing, but I don't have to use second person language. I get to kind of be more sneaky about it, which is really fun. Yes, if, if I recall correctly, uh, in one of the bunkers, there's kind of this board software engineer and my group at least got very flirty with him. So we were hoping that you were real. <laughs> <laughs> is that Kevin? Yes. Yeah, yeah, there was one, yep, there was a there was one group that was really um they really liked misanthropic Kevin, which was fun. That yeah, that that is really cool because I I have these kind of core characters that I start with and then people's responses to them are so varied. You know, sometimes I will say my opening line or the first thing I say and someone will put that tablet down and want nothing to do with it for 20 minutes. And then other times people will really just want to have this entire conversation. So that's a really, I don't know, it's, it's just interesting to see people's response to this weird, intimate, but staged way of communicating. And meanwhile, they're responding to everything that's also happening outside the bunker. So that's where you come in, Ian. You're doing, I guess, the almost excursions. Yes, if you leave the bunker, you get to talk to me and I'm going to take you on a wild ride of what you see and uh, find. Um, and it is totally reactive. I think when we first started thinking about this, we wanted to design a series of binary choices that would have sort of, you could do A or you could do B. And then, of course, people had much more creative ideas than, than those two, and they came up with their own things. And 
you have to say, that's a great idea. Yes, you totally do that. And here's how that unfolds. So by iterating over and over again, we've got this sort of jungle gym that guests get to play on and propose their own, um, you know, creative ideas, creative input. It reminds me a lot of being, um, you ever play that game on where there's like hot lava and you say, oh my God, you fell in the hot lava. You have to get back on the structure. I did that all the time as a kid. Most of my games as a kid involved imagining things. And I feel like um, we're, that's what we do. We're just still doing that. But it also connects, I think, to, to language. Um, the principal vehicle to get our stories out are it's, it's language, it's words. And in a weird way, it feels really connected to when we used to produce Shakespeare shows in the park. Like the first show we did was uh, Henry V, which if you're a Shakespeare nerd like me, you know that the chorus speech, every act starts with a chorus speech where this chorus basically describes what is happening in colorful terms. It'd be like if somebody turned Game of Thrones into a uh, radio play of iambic pentameter. They talk about the sound of the horse's hooves, the look of the banners and the like, uh, you know, what, squirts of the blood. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, <laughs> just by saying it, like the magic trick is that uh, if you believe what you're saying and people will lean forward and be engaged in, in a cool story. So I feel like a lot of the other immersive work out there is based in, in other vehicles like uh, uh, spectacle or um, uh, kinesthetic things. And ours is definitely uh, ideological. It's words, words, words. Right, because you're telling us what happens when someone leaves the bunker and goes on excursion. Austin is speaking to us as the female AI He's also texting everyone through the the chat tablets. So there, and also there is a lot going on. So did you start edit so multifaceted where people could be texting and Skyping and interacting with you as the game master? No. I think it grew like an onion. <laughs> Can I tell you what the can I tell you yeah can I tell you what the first one was like because it was sure. really, it was really funny to me. Um, the very first one we did a lot of play tests in Ian's kind of bunker like uh, part of his bedroom and in, in, in that house we did the wake in. And in the very first one, Ian had this idea and he said, "I want you to just play the computer." And the computer was just uh, typing, and you would sit at a desktop and type to this monitor who could do things like scan the surface tell you the weather, kind of really simple stuff that was just me pretending to do something that maybe someone who could program could make in a half an hour, but we're not, we're not into that. We can't do that. Um, and then Ian played like an Android or something that was in the space with them. And he was the debunk robot. Um, and so he was in there, you know, saying, hello, I'm the robot. How can I help you survive? Um, and halfway through the game, they turned on him. And they they made him leave the bunker and they put a sheet over the computer because they were convinced we were actually the villains of the story. So it started off very different and very strangely. And that was a good lesson in learning that you have to really enjoy the kind of free fall of they can do whatever they want. And we have to be able to make that into a compelling story for them. So how often do you as the folks helping curate this experience, 
push back against maybe a player going rogue versus like really leaning into it. I'm the good cop. Uh, by God, I will. But if you make it, it's like D&D. If you make an outrageous proposition, you're going to have to roll very well. If you haven't played D&D, they roll a 20-sided dice to see if you can do crazy stuff. In this version, we don't use dice um, or character sheets. But if you make an insane proposition, um, you better have a really creative way you're going to pull it off or you might get you might get punished by the world, which is fun, too. People don't mind getting punished if it's a cool story that... Um, you know, reflects their decisions. Are you the bad cop, Austin? Do you uh, do you punish people inside the bunker? No, I don't usually punish people because the bunker inside is more contained. I oftentimes have to weigh if their fun is going to be less fun for the group. That's the only time I say no. If they want to do something that kind of is going to be a net unfun for everybody else, then it's like, mm, you can't do that. But generally I'm with you. If If they want to make a big ask, um, make a big choice. I try to make it happen and try to make that a part of our world. I guess I should say that uh, there is no one ending to the bunker. Every single show has a unique one-of-a-kind epilogue based entirely on the decisions that have been made by the group. So uh, piece by piece, each of these plot points are like, you know, uh, divergent roads and you can pick where you go. Um, but no two groups have ever had the same ending. So you choose all kinds of decisions that sort of amalgamate into uh, um, an ending moment of, of catharsis. Yeah, I remember uh, certain people left the bunker, didn't come back for a while, came back not exactly human anymore. Uh, other bunkers started fighting with us. Uh, I believe at some point, Ian, you told me there was 256 endings and then later you amended that to 512 endings and then after that you did not want to assign a number we've evolved to a higher state of consciousness um no well if that was like a reflection of the binary thinking right where you have a roadmap that's um that you make anticipating how people will interact with it and then of course people you know they beat the they beat the system so in that sense it really has become um open to any ending. People could propose some very specific stuff and we would, uh, you know, see where the story took us. It's improvisational in that, in that respect. Um, Austin actually does the heavy lift on the end because he is, he does the epilogue. So much of the experience is collecting uh, data, collecting story points that maybe we can try to tie together, develop and then tie together into a satisfying ending. Like the ending of a, a Marvel movie or something, some really formulaic uh, movie where you know there's going to be a big uh, dramatic climax and resolution and you send everybody home happy. So what are some of the more outlandish things that have happened to Austin? Um, let's see. One ending was the entire world was turned into a hive mind and, and taken over into one giant consciousness. Cool. That one was a, that was a wild one. Or some of the, other, the some of the small. I mean, there are some like big, big endings, like you know, lots of destruction, big, wild, apocalyptic things. But some of the more fun ones have been like when they really liked, like the Kevin character, the the kind of solo person in a bunker who has a bad attitude. Um, there was a really funny one where 
a, a woman was flirting with him and they developed a romance. Um, but her father was at the experience with her. And I kind of didn't realize that till halfway through. And so there was a really funny, almost like, look who's coming to dinner thing where they all showed up to live at this other bunker with him. And it was a meet the family kind of epilogue, which is a very strange way to end an apocalypse. That's awesome. We have a lot of parents come to the bunker. Um, and it's fun. I think the event is pretty inclusive because we've had, um, I think we've had teenagers come and we've had people bring their parents um, and everybody is free to contribute in a way that's really fun. Nothing like bringing your dad along to tell a cooperative story with him. It, it depends on your dad. Yeah, that's uh, interesting because I think part of the, sometimes when I'm talking about experience, it's difficult to find a way to talk about it because it's not immersive theater in the way that a lot of people think of as immersive theater. And it's not pure D&D tabletop role-playing and it's not exactly an escape room or live action role play. So I don't know when people, they expect to get out of the bunker. Do they understand what the mechanics are going to be, what they're going to get in experience? I think, I think that um, it, we get trapped in labels because labels can help you focus, but they can also sort of shut off possibility space, right? When you introduce it as a, um, escape room, people want to try to solve it. If you do it as a LARP, people bring all the LARP expectations to it. So we actually discovered that we have to give a curtain speech every show where we just sort of talk a little bit about what it's going to be. And we have to say explicitly, this is not an escape room. Don't go rummaging for clues because nothing you find will help you. It's all obvious. Um, but then beyond that, I think every... A uh, piece of it is ramped up in an onboarding fashion where you learn, it's kind of like playing Mario, right? You're going to learn to walk as Mario. Then you're going to run as Mario. You're going to jump and then run and jump. And each block is adding this cool experience um, as opposed to some events that maybe you show up and they hand you an instruction manual and throw you in the deep end of the pool, which is, which is not fun. And you couldn't bring your dad to that event because he'd be overwhelmed. I'd be overwhelmed. You're right, though. It's hard to live in that space in between. And we've spent a lot of time like laboring over how do we describe ourselves before they come in for the curtain speech? Or how do we, you know, how do we market ourselves? Even if you're trying to sell tickets to something, it can be hard to kind of explain what you are when you're like, well, we're like this, but not really this and do some of that. And so having to be clear about that language has been good for us, but certainly it, it's a challenge. It's one of the harder things we have to do. Um, but it's like also interesting. That's a good word. What do you yeah. mean? Interactive. Interactive theater, I think, is the closest thing. Or procedurally generated uh, narrative. That sounds like sort of accurate. What do you think, Austin? Uh, well, I mean, if I had a great idea, I would have told you in our last meeting. But <laughs> using it. <laughs> I've, yeah. Um, yeah. I've heard a couple people started using the phrase playable theater. Oh, cool. Well, I like that. That's good. What's interesting is because, you know, this immersive, the immersive world has all these kind of little different genres or niches or whatever you want to call them. And it's fun sometimes in the bunker or the wake or whatever we're doing when, especially the bunker, because we did a longer run of that, where you have a night where, oh, it's mostly LARPers. And this is a really LARP focused show. 
or it's, oh, it's mostly escape room people. And they're going to really lean into some of the more puzzly elements of this. So people kind of also shift the event to their tastes um, in ways we didn't even maybe anticipate, which is kind of neat and fun to see. Yeah, it seems like the the container of the bunker is flexible enough that even within it, there's just like a lot of potential for someone to come back and have it be more puzzly one night and more LARPy the next. I think one of the design parameters was that we tried to have something for any kind of player. So there's a puzzly section. There are many puzzly sections, a lot of role-playing sections, stuff for introverts, stuff for extroverts. Um, so that no matter what kind of person decides to come, they're not, I don't know, stuck on the outside looking in, feeling dumb. Because uh, there's nothing worse than going to something and feeling like you don't have a, you don't belong there. You don't have a spot where you you belong. Um, and I guess I should make the make the hard sell. The bunker is playing <laughs> Wildrens, uh for April and May. We're the Tuesday night show. You got to come check it out. Um, if you're in New York, come see the bunker. And if you've never been to Wildrens, it is such a cool space uh, run by two amazing women. So, yeah, definitely a venue that is near and dear to my heart. And I think I've seen probably five or six different things there. And the programming there never ceases to surprise me. Yeah, they just do it all. I think the, they're an important part of the like the ecosystem in New York, because we couldn't, we couldn't have iterated the bunker over and over again without their partnership and their being so generous and saying, you know, here's the space, make it, make it happen. Um, and speaking of exciting new projects, uh, we've got our super villain comic book themed immersive coming up March 14th, 15th and 16th here in, uh, it's in Brooklyn. Uh, it's called the Rogues Gallery. So is that more role play e more puzzle hunty? What, what's going on with Rogues Gallery? Well, uh, it is a giant game of risk, you could think of it, because it's world domination. There is a map. People control regions on this map. Um, it's for 35 people, which is a lot bigger than the bunker. The bunker is for groups of 15. Um, except that the way you manipulate this map, the way you gain uh, your evil henchmen that are going to take over these regions is through uh, all the same things we've been talking about. Uh, Role-playing, puzzles, um, all in service of generating a narrative and getting a story. Uh, Austin has been frantically making uh, 80 years worth of newspapers that live in the space uh, all the way around this big white box uh, studio where you can go back to uh, every year chronologically to 1938 of all the things that have happened in our world, how we got here, people's like, you know, histories and um, all in this sort of comic book theme. The tone is really landing in a, an exciting way of comic books. So is everyone who comes into the Rogues Gallery a character? Are they are they also in this world? Might they find themselves in those newspapers? One of our pet peeves, or one of my pet peeves, I should say, is that when you come to an event, you should be yourself. And that uh, asking, I know that some people are really into having a prescribed character, but personally, when that happens to me, I feel like we get into a paradigm of being right or wrong, because you could say, 
or of just feeling sort of stupid if you don't know what your character is. So anyway, you come in the door and you get to sort of uh, discover the secret uh, supervillain inside of you that's always been there. And there's a selection process from all these options. And of course, with your supervillain uh, identity that you pick and you embrace, uh, you also have a special power, superpower. Um, so we're right in that comic book area of, I don't know, all the origin stories of all those like Spider-Man villains. I always liked Spider-Man. Austin, what was your favorite comic book? Um, I like Spider-Man. I like Superman. I like a lot of the DC stuff myself. Um, so the event uh, cast you... I don't want to say cast. It allows you to pick out your own supervillain. Okay, so I come in as me. I can become the supervillain that I would want to be yeah. with my own agenda, secret powers, perhaps a hidden flaw or weakness. Mayhaps. Yeah, you could have some uh, some secrets. There's certainly a wide world to be explored. I don't want to give too much away. But um, it's all sort of looped together in this nucleus of of the world domination game and the stories coming out of out of that. In a way, it might be the inverse of the bunker because the bunker is you're trapped in an isolated central spot where people leave and come back with new information. And this is more like a bunch of different people around this event that are coming to the center of this game and then uh, leaving to the extremes to gather resources and, and role play and learn more about the story. Um, and it's, you know, a big, exciting game in real time. So imagine, just imagine 35 people playing a game. It's almost like a mega game, which, uh, uh, like, Watch the Skies is the the ultimate one, or the most well-known one, which um, posits, like, what would it be like if the if aliens arrived on Earth and we are the United Nations and teams of countries? Um, this is not dissimilar to that, but with a lot more performance and... Um, narration and exciting story hooks where you get to be, you get to have that feeling of, of uh, being the main character. So there's 35 participants. Mm -hmm. And then in addition to that, who else is there? Well, there's a cast of performers. There's seven of us, which is a lot because the bunker is two or three. Uh, and so this is a lot more details to manage. And it's one thing to come up with a big, uh, expansive world that's populated with your ideas. It's a lot harder than to get seven performers to understand the full nuance of all these. I mean, clearly they need to read those 80 years of newspapers too, right? We're literally doing that tomorrow night. Oh, we're doing great. our uh, <laughs> second to last play test and we're dropping this bomb of exposition on them. 80 years of newspapers. <laughs> How are those coming, Austin? They're good. I'm halfway, a little two thirds way of, of knocking all those out. I mean, I've, I've got the ones for the playtest done tomorrow, but, you know, it, as soon as that's done, you start on the next thing. It never, never, ever stops iterating. Godspeed. <laughs> yeah, it's no, it's really fun. It, it's it's a that's maybe my favorite thing about these shows is finding new vessels to tell stories. That's I really love that. So, you know, in the bunker, we're telling a story through communicating with these other bunkers on a chat tablet. And in the rogues gallery, we're telling our story through, you know, 80 years worth of uh, newspaper front pages placed all over the walls. And it, it's just, I, I love that. I love finding, you take a story and, you know, it's a, it's a superhero theme story. It's a comic book story. So it's not like a story you've never heard. 
but now you're going to put it through this different lens and it just lands in these different ways. And there are things, really fun things you can do in newspapers, I'm finding that you can't do in any other storytelling form. And that delights me. And I think hopefully other people will be as delighted as I am. Amazing. So when people come to your experiences, what do you hope? I hope that it gives people um, that feeling of, of being a star. That sounds kind of cliche or like, or silly, but um, we all want to have a moment in the spotlight. We all want to be contributors to an amazing story um, and feel special. And I think that's, it's sort of um, a service, I think, more than a performance. It should make the guests, um, you know, have an exciting, fun time with their the star of the night. All 35 of them. <laughs> I agree with what Ian said, but I'll add this. I really hope, and so this is something we, we try to think very carefully about and work hard on, is that our shows feel easy. I think that part of what drove me away from theater and sometimes other, other immersive things I've seen, although I think they're it's just I, I think that there can be this kind of burden or that they're asking the audience to give more that feels like homework or medicine or you should or you shouldn't or why aren't you doing and I really want our events to be fun in a way where we're doing all the heavy lifting and you know puzzles can be hard and games can be challenging but I want the whole thing to seem easy and like it was just fun and entertaining and didn't make you jump through any unnecessary hoops or feel like you had to, or you should. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think that's something that a lot of people struggle with, especially when they're making something with more puzzle or game-like elements where just like you were saying, Ian, like just having that label can immediately drive some people away. And if something feels too accessible, the more expert players can feel like they didn't I don't know, like get enough value from the content, if you know what I mean? Yeah, I'm, th these are the trappings of expectation and what is um, what is design but managing people's expectations. Uh, I think that like fundamentally, as long as people get to experience a interesting world where they can leave their fingerprints on it, to whatever that means to them, they will leave happy. So maybe we have to reframe the paradigm. It's a game, but it's not about winning and losing. It's not zero sum. It's about like exploring the adventure. This sounds up. No, no, no. Um, no. There, there's a Nordic LARP, right? That they say that they play to lose, mm. which means they play for story. Ah, I like so, that a lot. Yeah, the most epic story that you can make together that's how they want to play it doesn't matter if there's literally a win state or not yeah i agree and, and we to be honest sorry go on Austin. Well, yeah we it's interesting because you know we do a lot of game we, we you know we do game systems we're inspired by games but we've kind of found that sometimes your games are better if they're a lie like the the veneer of a game can make a better story than an actual game like a lot of times when we set up a game system or tell somebody these are the rules of our system in the background we're cheating or that may not be true or we can tweak that or play with it on, play with it on the fly um you know 
games are good for getting people invested, but breaking rules, that's better for telling stories. So we do a lot of fast and loose games. Yeah, people and people don't want mechanics. They want, unless they're in service of an interesting, cool story. Um, mechanics by themselves is just like design for the sake of design. We're designing for experience. You want to have an experience that's interesting. Drop the mic. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, so we've been at this for a little while. Um, once again, what are those dates for the Bunker and Rogues Gallery, Ian? The Bunker is at Wildrance. Uh, I think it's every Tuesday in April and the first half of May. And the Rogues Gallery, the first uh, run of it is going to be March 14, 15, and 16. And that's at a different space in Brooklyn. You guys have got to come check it out. Uh, the Rogues Gallery, this will be the first time we've ever performed it for an audience. So you can come be a part of history the first ever, well, the new one. We had an well, old one yeah. that was different. This is the new okay, one. So Rogues Gallery version 2.0. 2.0. Awesome. Bigger, better, mo fun. <laughs> Amazing. Well, thank you both so much. Thank you, Austin, on the line from Washington State. Thank you, Ian, who's sitting two feet away from me. Um, this has been a pleasure. <laughs> thank you so much. Um, good night. Yeah, Everybody have a wonderful night. <laughs> Thank you. Good night. Thank you. Good night. Once again, I want to thank Ian McNeely and Austin Anderson of Broken Ghost Immersives for being our guests on the show and for Catherine Yu uh, for uh, hosting again, right? We've got an awesome team here taking care of all these things for you, particularly while I'm running around, putting out fires, building the future, and uh, settling my family <laughs> back uh, into the land uh, from which we came from-ish. Uh, well, land I came from anyway. I don't know if everyone knows, I was, like, I was born in, in Southern California, so this has always been a homecoming, the whole nine yards. All right, hey, um, I also wanna give a shout out. I'm about to get into some stuff. Um, I want to give a shout out to Jeff Heinbuck, uh, who's uh, one of the moderators over at Everything Immersive. Everything Immersive, for those of you who don't know, is the Facebook group that we have. Uh, a little over 5,000 members strong. Actually, 5.2 thousand members. 5.2, no one says that. Five and a quarter. About five and a quarter thousand. I don't know. Numbers. They're, they exist. Um, there's, there's a fair number of people in there. And uh, sometimes there's some really, really robust uh, conversations. And for the most part, everyone stays pretty civil. There are folks who like to turn it up to nine or 10, pretty much like right out of the gate. Um, makes life a little hard. Uh, no one's really getting paid to, you know, do this part of the work. It's not a fun part of the work. And so I want to thank Jeff for uh, owning, particularly with the stuff that happens in the L.A. community. LA community is very passionate, passionate, uh, and as well they should be. The work in Los Angeles is often of a very uh, high level of engagement, 
right? There's a lot of agency that is seated, particularly narrative agency, or at least the illusion of narrative agency uh, that's seated in. Um, there's uh, uh, one going on in EI right now. And for all I know, it's gone radioactive while I'm talking to you here. Uh, I, for for mostly for logistical reasons, I'm like not actively moderating that post at the moment because there are other things that only I can do. Uh, it's going on. Uh, it is a post uh, that one of the uh, group members put up. Uh, Darren Lynn Bowsman had put up a blog post, uh, uh, which was a reaction to uh, a blog post and some social media posts that were in reaction to the uh, the talk, the I guess uh, panel ish thing that we did at IDS this year. So there was an IDS panel that was Darren. Uh, who's you know, cre- you know director and co-writer of Tension, Clint Sears, who is the writer of Tension, and Gordon B. Jelanek, who is the producer of Tension. They've been on the show before a couple of times. You know that. Um, there's been my favorite thing. I mean, it's in a positive sense. Like I, I'm, I'm not. Schadenfreude is is not my 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 meat. I do not I do not get off on other people uh, suffering. Right. It's not it's not in my nature. Um, my legit favorite positive thing in all this is there is there is, is a statement of Darren's and he used it in his blog post and he used it on stage. And it is kind of at the heart of what's being talked about. And and except, unfortunately, no one's really addressing it head on, um, which is the perception is the reality. Right. Um and this is an astute observation born out of the experiences he's had creating. It's also a very good tool for us to look at when we get into these games of telephone about what has happened in productions, what people have said on stages, when people who weren't there are repeating things. And there's also a level to this where because people have individualized experiences and because no creator of an experience, unless they are performing the roles, knows absolutely everything that goes on. And right now I want to make a note. I am not talking about something that happened in tension. I'm making a generalization about just the bare reality of unless the creator is performing the role then the creator doesn't know the exact nature of the interaction unless they got cameras going on. And even then, cameras are not a perfect recreation. Perception is always going to come into it, right? Here comes the Obi-Wan Kenobi quote for everybody, okay? It's like, you're going to find that many of the truths we cling to depend greatly on our own point of view. I've learned a lot about that process in the past couple of years. The filters we have that we walk into a situation with, right? It's like, it's like the cave. It's like the tree on Dagobah. What will you find? Only what you take with you. Not entirely. There's going to be some stimulus in there. The intersection that we have, the thing when we get to talking around the art, the thing that a lot of these conversations should be in, if people can keep themselves from making it personal is about that interconnection 
between the content, you know I hate the content word, but I'm going to say it, the content that is being presented and the perceptual matrix that someone walks into the production with. The reality that is created is based on the perception of the content, right? That can mean that something is taken out of context can wind up having a radically different meaning from when it's in context. And I think we all know this. It's what the enterprise, the enterprise, the internet has done to us. It's created context collapse. So the number one thing I want to point out to everybody, and look, there's some other stuff going on that I want to address. But the number one thing I want to point out about this conversation right here, all right, is about this idea of are we, you know, where's the context, right? What is being perceived? What is the reality? Where are those gaps? And an open question, particularly around issues of danger or perceived danger, and this part I'm getting a little bit from Monica Miklas, uh, there's, there's a question to be had, and this is again, in general, is, is, is simulated or the perception of danger in itself dangerous? My answer for that is Ness which is no, mostly, occasionally, yes. I want to look at it this way. We know that there are standards around children's television so that certain behaviors are not modeled for children. Because for children, the thought is, is that if you present something, they may copy it. And they may copy it, they may go do it. Right? So we don't show certain things because we do not want that behavior copied. And the general idea is that as you grow and develop, and sorry if I'm lecturing, but I am, you're able to handle more. And everyone develops at different rates, and not everyone necessarily develops. That's just fact. Right? Um, there are some things we can do about it, and there are some times where we can't do anything about it. But the critical thing is that gap between what the audience is prepared for, what the audience knows, and what it is they encounter and see. Things can go horribly wrong. Things can also go incredibly delightful based on the ambiguities. Surprise, shock, these are long-standing storytelling tools. Whether or not you are signaling clearly is something that every creator faces. And I don't want to speak for every, anyone, but I do know that just about, just about, just about everyone involved in the dialogue that's going on, particularly every active creator that I know that is involved in the dialogue going on, like just about, right? 95%. And the other 5%, I'd probably give it to them, are thinking about these issues, are talking about these issues in small groups, with other colleagues, internally and externally, right? The goal in the long run is to get people talking. So that's happening. The question is, is can we get people listening? <laughs> To each other 
And can we get that dialogue getting to someplace honest and with us all with the eyes on the prize of developing this thing together, having a common language together? That is the heart of the discussion that is going on right now. I'm not actively participating in it because to some degree, I'm not a creator. Most, to most degree, I'm not a creator. And I want to try to make, hold the space for the creators to have that. And I do think it's appropriate, very appropriate, that participants who have a lot invested share their perspective, all right? What I want everyone to remember is that your perception of what's going on is forged by your experiences that you've had and to keep in mind that that's happening with other people as well, all right? So let's try to not invalidate other people's experiences of reality, but let me scratch down a little deeper. If that's a bit vague, it's because some of the stuff is mostly really heady. I will also say that the people who are having this discussion are having it in good faith, right? So if you're sitting there in this furball and you're getting heated, um, somebody might be trolling somewhere down the line. I tend to be suspicious, right, of, of everything and everyone. It's in my nature. But to the best of my knowledge and ability and focus, which is lacking sorely these days, I'm perceiving discussions in good faith, right? So center yourself in that. Please, for the love of God, or whatever you believe in, center yourself in the idea that if you want to see people act in good faith, please argue in good faith. And preferably not argue, but explain, ask questions, try and get around and see things from people's points of view. We've seen before in EI, people do exactly that, okay? And I hope to keep on seeing that as we go forward in the future. Let's talk about another thing that popped up in EI over the weekend. Um, a blind item post. There was a blog post from a young man posting on Medium about a production in Los Angeles uh, and about creator and a production in Los Angeles. That's posted on EI. You can read the young man's own words. Also circulating around are in, in no place in that post. And let me be clear, the post ex describes emotional manipulation that led to sexualized contact between a performer and a creator of a production. The production is not named, the creator is not named. Those who follow the company and who have been participants know who the performer is and are able to kind of put two and two together for themselves. There are people who wonder why, and even right now, why I am not saying the names, because clearly, clearly, if I can put all those pieces together, then I must know something. I must know the names. And I do. And it's for the following reason. Liability insurance. Am I proud of it? 
Fuck no. I'm not. I'm very frustrated. But I also know that, barring certain conditions, namely, barring people going on the record, and for the threshold of where I'm going, barring two people going on the record, and a conversation with the accused, I'm not publishing anything because that's the standard that I hold Two on the record sources and an interview with the accused or at least an attempt. Someone says like, fuck you. I'm not addressing this. That's a response, right? Seen it plenty of times. The other thing, the other thing about that is around that liability issue, the liability insurance. Because you say names and you can get sued. Something I don't really have the time for and that I definitely don't have the money for. And let me be super transparent. No pro isn't organized as anything other than an adjunct of my own personal finances at the moment. So I don't have an LLC here. So if I get sued, I get sued straight up. That puts me behind the eight ball. I don't like being there. I prefer that people say what they mean and have freedom to say and go and do. But there you go. And I also believe that people should have the chance to, at least in public forum, not necessarily in a court of law, not necessarily across with someone, you know, address the accusations that have been made against them. Maybe because I'm old fashioned like that. And that's why when I look at something, I know that part of the process is I have to go talk to the person. And then I go talk to the person once I have enough Anyway, um, there's also the, always the possibility that I go and I interview someone and I look at all the evidence that I have and I see that it doesn't hit that threshold. If memory serves the threshold on a libel suit, someone can correct me on this and I actually would love it if someone corrected me on this, is that a publisher, uh, what is it, like, doesn't knowingly publish something that they do not believe is true or that they have reason to believe may not be true. Oh, that's what it is. Have reason to believe they may not be true. I will state right now for the record so that everyone knows, I am not in a place at the moment where I have taken anything to a point where I have put a final stake in a coffin. I only have questions. I have a lot of questions. I only have questions and I don't have enough to move forward beyond those questions. I don't like it. it makes me cranky. And also this is something that somebody's fully funded newsroom would be a hell of a lot better equipped to deal with. So, 
if you're out there and you're a journalist and you've got a fully equipped newsroom and you're like, whoa, 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 what's up? You know, there are stories, stories to be found. And there are people who know what the stories are. So if you got insurance and you got the time, you have a salary, be our guest, be our guest, be our fucking guest. Yeah, that's what's up. Um, and that stuff is very different, very different from the discussion that's going on, the ethical creative discussion. There is a liminal space. There is a genre liminal space around ideas of surprise, shock, information being withheld, what people are ready for, finding ways to self-select an audience. There are completely clean ethical ways to do that. And I believe that everyone who is having that discussion over an EI about tension, and by everyone, I also mean the creators who have dipped in, I believe with all my heart that everyone wants to find that best practice, all right? So if you're sitting there going, ah, so-and-so said, everyone wants the same goddamn thing. They want to find the best practice because they want to give people exactly what they're looking for, okay? Not in a customer service sense, but in a, this stuff can be peak experiences, Simulated peak experiences, but peak experiences. This stuff can take you back to where you were when you first saw a movie that moved you. When you first made a movie. (laughs) That's what everyone's chasing. And I firmly believe, maybe I'm a naive freaking idiot, but I firmly believe everyone who's having that discussion, even the people who drive me up the wall, and there are people who drive me up the wall, some of them I like and some of them I don't like, drive me up the wall when we're having that discussion, right? Every single one of them, I believe, is coming from a sincere place. And the issue around the Me Too stuff, this sounds like dismissive way to say it. I don't like saying it that way, but it's what came to mind. The issues around the Me Too things, that's separate. That's honestly bigger than a fucking blogger, bigger than an artist collective, particularly when they don't have legal protections can deal with. Something that as a community, we can surely deal with, right? And I think we can see that the community has been doing what it can right? To deal with it. And if anyone's still pissed off and says Noah's a coward for not saying the names, well, Facebook's there. Why don't you say the names? We're not so different, you and I.
that's a fun note. Um, there you go. I'm going to say that for a while. Today's the day I decided to say it. So there you go. That's what's up. Um, we're trying to build a better world than the one that the other generations made for us. I'm a little old in the tooth now. Forty-three. This is my answer year, I like to call it. No, that last year was my answer year. Never mind. I'm older than my answer year, so I guess I found my answer. Because 42 is the answer. I'm 43. I know what I'm supposed to be doing in the world. And I know that for a very long time, we have lived in a world that is not just, not fair, not true, not honest, not balanced. And a lot of stuff gets done in the name of things. When in fact, it's just people. It's just people, man. People being people at each other. Messed up people being messed up. Unmessed up people trying not to be messed up. Messed up people messing up people. On and on, turtles all the way down. And the thing that the thing that hurts, if anything hurts out of this, is that when I see people of good faith zeroing in on the details, that that magnetic action can kind of fling them apart. And in the wings, there's the chaos bringers and the people who act in bad faith. Glad that that happened because it creates a convenient blind for them to keep on acting in bad faith. And sometimes, most of that time, that bad faith is because someone's trapped in a dark cycle of their own. And this form of art reaches people so deeply triggers people so readily that it's going to attract folks from all kinds of extremes. And it has, and we've seen that. Sorry, I keep scratching the mic. Um, but it's not... It's not possible to stop it from attracting folks who need something more, need, need real help or from people who want to do damage. The best we can do, the best we can do. And I believe this fully. And you can argue with me about this. The best we can do is the people in good faith can collectively find the standards and find the signs and find the language by which we can operate together in order to help those who are new to be able to tell the difference between what's normal and what's very much wrong, right? And there are always going to be ambiguities and shades of gray, and there's always going to be sincere disagreements, and there's always going to be folks who think they can push the envelope a little farther than maybe can actually be pushed. And there's always going to be times when everyone takes the leap and it works. 
All right. The fundamental question is, is it malicious or not? That for me is the core of the standard. And I won't let people on my platforms if I think they are actively malicious. And if I'm questioning that someone might be actively malicious, I will take a pause. And one day we'll have a nice juicy liability writer. And one day we'll have an investigative unit and you can do the things that I can't do. That's going to be a good day. I really look forward to that day, actually. It'd be nice. No, I'm not asking for your sympathy. I'm not asking for your money, but I am asking for your help. None of us are going to do this alone. All right? So be good to each other. All right, I got some work to do. Um, Yo, uh, I want to thank all the people who do back the show on the regular basis. Let's read the names like we always do. Uh, where is that? Here we go. Jan Bubman, Lonnie Hansen, Ari Herstan, Mark Balthazar, Sam Kinkin, and Ross Sigworth. The music is by Chris Porter of the Speakeasy Society. Um, once again, always use your judgment. Start there. Start there. Use your judgment. Use your discretion. Look into things for yourself. If you need us to clarify things, we're there to help with that. And if there's something that we cannot do, we'll tell you. We will. Never be afraid to ask me why. All right. I said that that way. Anyway, look, I got to go like scoop up some cat shit or something. Sorry for the vulgarity. I'm in a mood. Until next time, I'll see you at the show.